Good evening, and welcome to Bird Calls from the Knoll Foundation Studios here at Red River Radio. Tonight's program is made possible in part by the Knoll Foundation and the Community Foundation of North Louisiana. To take your calls tonight, we have a phone bank of volunteers including Chiara Lafitte, Max Benedetti, and Henry Edwards. We invite you to call in with your questions about our feathered friends and the avian world at 800-552-8502. That's 800-552-8502. I'm Cliff Shackleford, your host of Bird Calls here at Red River Radio. I'm ready to answer your questions about birds tonight, so let's hear from you by calling us at 800-552-8502. So last month was our ninth anniversary, and I forgot to make an annual thank you shout out to everyone that's been involved in the show. So let's do it now. Certainly all the Red River Radio staff and their phone bank volunteers couldn't do this without an integral. Um, Bill Beckett, thanks, big shout out to Bill Beckett, James Childress, Les Stewart, Julie Shackelford, the various guests we've had on this show, bird songs found at xenocantu.org website, and very importantly, you, the listener, who enjoy the show and make a financial contribution to Red River Radio to keep this show and others like it going. So uh, annual thanks to everybody, nine years and going strong. So we start off recapping the conservation tip from the previous month. And what we talked about last month at the end of the episode was take a child or grandchild camping and hiking. We talked about how essential it is and how therapeutic it is to get outside. It's best for our well-being, uh, especially our youth. And they need to be unplugged. They need to learn about the outdoors, the do's and the don'ts. Um, you can start by practicing camping in your own backyard. And that's a fun way to do it when the kids are little. And, you know, one of the keys I mentioned is be very wise about the weather. You don't want to go, like right now, it was 100 degrees outside. It's not going to get cool enough tonight to camp. So this is clearly not a good camping night. Um, and then in the winter, you want to make sure it's not so cold that you have to bundle up to go out and use the bathroom. So find that sweet spot and, and take the kids camping. It's a great excuse to travel. It's a great excuse to see other parts of your state or neighboring states and, and the different flora and fauna that come with it. So, so take a kid or grandkid camping and hiking. That was the conservation tip last month. Tonight's profile species is the great-tailed grackle. Across much of the listening area and extending westward across the southwestern U.S., especially in larger cities and towns, most of us are familiar with the sounds of the great-tailed grackle. Let's listen to two recordings of them here. Number two, here's the second example. Number three. 
There it is. That, that's the voice of the displaying male. It's elaborate, has a variety of sounds. Some of her electric sounding, often likened to a laser gun in a sci-fi movie. <clears throat> it's hard to believe that the Great Tail Grackle is a fairly recent addition to the entire Red River Radio listening area, plus several parts of the rest of its U.S. range, including much of Texas. Some of the earlier writings on Texas avifauna, including Strecker's 1912 checklist, The Birds of Texas, states that this species occurred only in South Texas from San Antonio to Corpus Christi and all points south to the Rio Grande Valley and on into Mexico. Oberholzer's 1974 book, The Bird Life of Texas, mentions that this grackle did not arrive in Fort Worth until 1944 or Dallas until 1947. The explosion northward through Texas, Louisiana, and beyond caught steam during World War II and shortly afterwards when, in the 50s, Many people moved from rural areas into the cities. As many cities grew, so did populations of this grackle. There's safety in numbers with the grackle, which is part of the reason for their success. During the breeding season, males carefully guard harems of females that are raising his young. He and other males are vicious towards intruders that are perceived predators. The colonies, whether during the nesting season or winter roost sites, can be large and with their poop are considered by many to be a nuisance. Anyone who tucks their vehicle nicely under a shaded tree full of these nesting or sleeping birds soon regrets their decision as the car is speckled in whitewashed droppings of the grackle. The male great-tailed grackle is slender and long with iridescent black feathers and has a long shovel scoop tail. The females are smaller and covered in a drabber shade of brown and black. They forage in open areas like parking lots in search of scraps tossed out of cars or fallen out of garbage cans as they also forage on mowed lawns in search of anything that crawls. Watch how they sometimes forage close behind a lawnmower or bush hog as grackles can prosper on insect prey injured by the mower. There are three species of grackles in the U.S. At one time, the great-tailed and its close relative, the boat-tailed grackle, a resident of coastal marshes straddling the Gulf Coast, were considered one species. There are slight differences, however, which has resulted in the split into two species. In Texas and Louisiana, the adult male great-tailed has pale yellow eyes, while the adult male boat-tailed has brown eyes. The forehead and crown are very flat on the great-tailed, while that of the boat-tailed is slightly rounded or humped. This gives their heads very different profiles. Otherwise, both are glossy black, noisy, and often occur in sizable flocks. The main difference in Texas and Louisiana is with range, as the boat tail does not occur very far from coastal marsh with its brackish water, while the great tail has a far greater range that includes an expansion that continues to push northward into the Great Plains and beyond with the aid of an increase in urbanization. So kind of a long species account on the great tail grackle because I, I find it fascinating i mean it it went to went from zero to 60 rather quickly as far as its range here and again it's it's a newcomer to our listening area and beyond okay so we we already have a a caller calling in let's 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 take dudley he's on uh line 317 dudley are you there yes i'm in Go ahead. Uh, 
Chris, I don't remember if you, re- you may recall, but about ninth, the summer of 2018, uh, we were wa- outside. We were watching our hummingbirds, and we saw one that appeared to be a- an albino. Mm-hmm. We were able to take a picture of it, and I sent the picture to you. And I was just wondering if you remember, uh, you explained to us that it wasn't an albino, but we're still not really understanding what it was, if you remember what I'm talking about. I I get lots of uh, pictures of abnormal hummingbirds, and I'm sorry to say I don't remember yours, Dudley. And uh, I'm betting if I I didn't concur that it was albino, the the word used is leucistic, L-E-U-C-I-S-T-I-C, and that basically is like a, a white wash to, to the bird where you can still see hints of dark here and there, but maybe not a whole lot. And they're, they're variable. Some, some leucistic birds have more of their normal colors than other. But it's, albino is a very strict term. It, it, it not only means the bird is white, it means that all the, the fleshy parts are pink, very pink. The eyes are pink. The legs are pink, and that's sometimes very hard to see on a hummingbird because the eyes are tiny and the feet are tiny and usually hidden uh, by the bird's feathers and so forth. So does that sound like uh, what we're talking about, that, that the, the comment, if I gave you one, was that it was leucistic? I can't remember the word you used, but the way you described it, that's, that sounds like it was. Okay, yeah. Uh, it was. We, we have never seen a another one like it and i think you indicated it probably because of its uh coloring and all that it probably would not uh survive too long you might say in in nature no i i think what i may have said is that they stick out more to predators when they're all white and i i've seen some all white ones that uh coincidentally one of the first ones i ever saw when i lived in was living in austin the the lady that had it was on a golf course and when that that bird flew by, it looked like a tide list was hit with a four iron off of the the, the tee. So it, it it sticks out a lot more as a white bird. But um, I, I don't think any other reason would would be other than you know maybe feather care because the melanin which gives the darkness to feathers keeps the de- the feathers protected, makes them stronger. When when you have white feathers, they they can fray a lot more easily. So I, I think it, it probably didn't hurt it at all other than if it if if it could keep clean and, and keep out of predators ways and there are predators of hummingbirds believe it or not um yeah so all right well thank you yeah thank you dudley so before we take any other calls i am really excited to introduce our in-studio guest and i didn't have to go very far to find her because she's my wife yeah so i'm really excited to have julie shackleford here and i'm going to read her bio sketch and then we're going to talk because she's also in the business of of wildlife conservation and that's why she's here and she she does way more protecting birds than i do so that's another reason why we have her here tonight so julie shackleford the conservation funds texas director has been with that nonprofit organization since 2004 through acquisition and conservation easements, she's focused on protecting some of the most iconic landscapes in Texas and beyond. 
Since 2004, Julie has raised over $100 million from public and private sources to permanently conserve over 100,000 acres of land. Her work targets special places like the Big Thicket National Preserve, the Natchez River, Upper Texas Coast National Wildlife Refuges, including McFadden and Anahuac, Laguna Atascosa National Wildlife Refuge in the Rio Grande Valley, and various state lands, including Village Creek State Park, Powderhorn Ranch, and the J.D. Murphy Wildlife Management Area. In East Texas, she established the first designated paddling trail along the Natchez River through the Texas Parks and Wildlife Department's paddling program. She was a recipient of the 2020 Terry Hershey Award for Texas Women in Conservation bestowed by Audubon, Texas. Julie holds a Master's of Environmental Management degree from Duke University's Nicholas School of the Environment and a BA in Biology from Carleton College in Minnesota. She lives in Nacogdoches with her husband, Cliff. Hey, that's me. <laughs> and two children. Ooh, two children. We have, we have two kids. Oh, okay. I'm glad that this is on here to remind me. So anyway, Julie, thank you for coming in and talking to us. Oh, thank you very much. I'm so glad to be here. And of course, I have some questions for Julie, but we also encourage people listening to call in with their question for her. 800-552-8502. So my first question, Julie, is tell me about the role of the Conservation Fund and what you do there. Well, thanks. Um, I'm not sure if I should say thanks, Cliff, or thanks, honey, but... Uh, thank you, sir. Would, okay, thank, you, okay. Sir, thank you, sir. <laughs> um, I have been with the Conservation Fund now for 18 years. It seems... I can't believe it's been that long. It's actually gone really fast, and I've loved every minute of working there. Um, the Conservation Fund is a nonprofit organization, and we work across the country to protect land and water. So for three decades, uh, we've been buying land for public agencies at the federal, state, and local level. Um, and these are lands that go into parks and refuges across the country. Uh, the Conservation Fund as a whole has now permanently conserved more than eight and a half million acres of land in all 50 states. Mm. And that's not just wildlife, it's uh, working forests and agriculture, it's historic sites, it's uh, recreational sites, it's of course habitat. Uh, we average uh, on a yearly basis about 120 transactions across the organization and we can serve roughly 200,000 acres each year. But I wouldn't be surprised if you had never heard of us uh, we are a small organization. Uh, we work behind the scenes with our partners. And our partners are, of course, uh, public agencies, many businesses, private individuals, foundations. Uh, we're solely focused on land deals. We don't, we don't really do education. We don't do a lot of outreach. Um, we don't have a membership. We don't do advertising. We don't do litigation. Uh, we're focused only in the U.S., and so we're very um, narrowly focused on our mission, which is land conservation. Um, sometimes our name can probably con be confusing, the Conservation Fund. We're not actually a bank. Um, we, don't, um, we don't give money to, to individuals. Um, what, we, what the Conservation Fund is um, and the way, the reason that we can be so successful with our acquisition is we have an internal revolving fund. So this is a fund that's um, about $150 million strong uh, that our 
uh, organization can borrow from when we have land that landowners want to sell, um, and, and these lands that they're wanting to sell are usually going into refuges uh, like a Fish and Wildlife Service National Wildlife Refuges or national parks or state parks, things like that. Uh, when a landowner wants to sell their land um, to a, a federal agency or a public entity, uh, the conservation fund can step in and borrow from our revolving fund. That can take the landowner out of the deal so that they don't have to wait around for uh, as the predictably slow um, governmental process of, of, uh, of buying land. So the conservation fund can step in, use our revolving fund, purchase the land, and then we're the ones who are working with the agencies um, to eventually convey that land uh, with usually public funds over into the refuge system. So then we can take the money from the revolving fund and then revolve it, in, revolve it into more de deals. Mm -hmm. So in Texas, um, in the listening area, Texas, Louisiana, and Arkansas, we've protected um, about 500,000 acres of mm, land since nice. 1990. And in this listening area specifically, uh, we have worked on uh, acquiring about 8,000 acres in the Natchez River National Wildlife Refuge in Texas, and that's between Jacksonville and Palestine in East Texas. We have um, completed two conservation easements along the Natchez River, then those totaled about 40,000 acres. Um, in in uh, El Dorado, Arkansas, we've protected about 10,000 acres at the Felsenthal National Wildlife Refuge and about 30,000 acres at the Red River National Wildlife Refuge and Catahoula Refuge in Louisiana. Hmm. All right. So you guys are lean and mean, sounds like. We are lean and mean. And, and, and the focus is just land protection. You mentioned no membership. No outreach. That means you don't have a slick magazine. Right. We don't. We're, we have very low overhead, which would explain the mm. furniture from the 1970s that I, ha <laughs> that I have in my office. Great. Okay. So, how do public lands that birds are so prevalent on, like refuges and ref refuges and parks, how do they get established? Public lands get established. Well, that all gets uh, gets attributed to one of my heroes, who, who is President uh, Teddy Roosevelt. And this was back in the early 1900s. Uh, Teddy Roosevelt, uh, who's known as the conservation president, uh, used presidential authority to protect wildlife and public lands by actually creating the U.S. Forest Service. And then he also established national forests and many federal bird and game reserves and national parks and national monuments. In fact, in his time, he set aside over 230 million acres of land, mm. which is um, really, I mean, unprecedented, oh, unprecedented. Oh, I get it. Yeah. Yeah, um, we don't pay extra for that. <laughs> in 1903, uh, President Roosevelt established the first National Wildlife Refuge, which was Pelican Island National Wildlife Refuge in Florida. And he did this for the birds. He did it to protect uh, water birds from market hunting. These, as, as we, you have talked about before, these birds have been hunted and hunted and hunted, mostly for their feathers at the time. Um, and so Teddy Roosevelt set up the first National Wildlife Refuge. And today, there are over 560 refuges in the country. Nearly all of them have some kind of a bird protection component. Many of them also focus on uh, uh, threatened and endangered species as well. Uh, in Texas, one example of that is Aransas National Wildlife Refuge, which is on the central coast in Texas, um, it has protected nearly all of the wintering grounds 
uh, for the federally endangered whooping crane. And of course, whooping cranes were heavily hunted uh, back in the early 1900s. And so preventing hunting on those birds, uh, of course, went a long ways to save, to helping their population rebound. But um, protecting their wintering grounds from, from development and conversion was super helpful too. So today, um, of course, establishing a refuge takes a long time and, and not many of them, it's a pretty slow process. Today, um, the U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service can propose new national wildlife refuges um, based on a very specific conservation need, whether that's waterfowl prote uh, protection or migratory bird habitat, things like that. Um, when refuges now get established, it's usually based on 50 to 60 years of research and historical documentation that has shown that these particular landscapes um, have, are very important to whatever the, the focal uh, species is. Um, the federal government, the Fish and Wildlife Service can propose a refuge, then this goes through a public process, not, not unsurprisingly, like um, uh, environmental assessments and public comments, things like that. So the director of the Fish and Wildlife Service ultimately makes the final decision on whether uh, to establish a refuge. One of the newer ones uh, is in our listening area, um, and that's the one I mentioned earlier, the Natchez River National Wildlife Refuge, which was established in 2007. And actually the Conservation Fund has purchased almost all of the land uh, that has gone into that refuge. Um, when a refuge is established, there's a, basically a circle on a map that says, this is the land that can potentially go into that refuge. And that's where we step in, is we can help the agency purchase those lands to, to add to the refuge. And many people ask, well, where does the funding come from for that? And there's two primary funding sources uh, specific to this purpose. The first is the Migratory Bird Conservation Fund, which you have talked about many times on the show, and that's duck stamp funding. So hunters uh, buy duck stamps, and that money, in part, goes to purchase additional land to help uh, waterfowl and other birds. So everybody buy a duck stamp. Uh, and the second source of funding is the Federal Land and Water Conservation Fund. Uh, these are, in part, revenues that are generated from out outer continental uh, shelf oil and gas leases. So money from oil and gas. So Gulf, Gulf oil. Gulf oil. Uh, rigs, yeah. Yep. Um, there are some of the uh, revenues that come from that go into this land and water conservation fund, again, to, to protect habitat. And those are the two funding sources. So they're not tax dollars. They're not tax dollars. Right. Yep, very important. So a couple things. You mentioned that the, the birds that Teddy Roosevelt protected Pelican Island for feathers. I thought I should mention that. We're not talking about feathers to stuff in pillows and down jackets. This is, these were feathers for aesthetics that uh, ladies were putting in their hats, the millinery trade, where they were putting sometimes just a big plume of an egret or sometimes the entire wing to jazz up their look. And, and it just doesn't work. And, and we're, we're both pro hunting. We both understand its value and I'm a hunter. It, you mentioned market hunting we're, we're you know that's what we had to quit and make sure we get into the hunting season we have now with with seasons and bag limits because when you only have 14 whooping cranes left you had to stop that um i'd call persecution we had to we, we had 14 whooping cranes left on the planet 
in about 1930 something. So uh, that's when things really changed. And, and like you mentioned, we did things like, or not we, but things were done to protect habitat, Aransas um, and, and elsewhere. So hunting is good, but in the market hunting where you just go out and shoot as much as you want any day of the year, that is not sustainable at all. It doesn't work. So even the hunters agree, we need limits. We need to have seasons. We have to time them correctly. We need bag limits and so forth. So it, it can work. Um, so great. Um, so why do we need public land when you look around, it looks like there's so much open land around us? Well, it does, and, and there is. Um, and But there's all kinds of reasons that we need public land. Uh, of course, first is for wildlife. Um, wildlife needs large landscapes, uh, migration corridors, um, Public land provides, for the most part, roadless and windowless areas where wildlife can just go out and be and do their thing and not have to worry about humans getting in the way. Um, and in Texas, for example, it is 94% private. So there's a lot of, you know, there's a lot of land out there. A lot of, well, actually, I was gonna say a lot of people have access to the land, but that is the issue. 94% private, the, the number of landowners is actually quite small compared to the general population. So public lands provide places where people who live in the city uh, can go and explore nature. And like you were talking about with your conservation tip and taking mm -hmm. a kid out in nature, you can't go out and trespass on people's private land. You need to go to some place where there's public land and, and there's signage and there's trails. Um, so those are some of the those are some of the benefits. Community benefits are also important. There's tourism benefits, there's uh, sales tax, things like that. So the communities in those areas der derive a lot of benefits mm -hmm. as well from public land. You're, you're listening to Bird Calls on Red River Radio. If you have a question for me or our guest, Julie Shackleford, that number is 800-552-8502. Again, 800-552-8502. We're talking about land protection that benefits not only birds but as you just mentioned be benefits uh, people giving public access so what got you started in, in this line of work well i think i've always i've always been interested in biology and i remember even as a young kid just kind of being the the weird kid that my parents didn't really quite know what to do with me uh, when I would, you know, I was take off on my bike or take off into the woods and, and, and look around for hours and hours, and it concerned them, I think. But um, I did um, go to college, and, and I knew I was going to become a biology major, and I didn't really know what I was going to do with that. Um, I kind of didn't know conservation was even a field. So um, it wasn't until I was a junior um, in college where I went on a study abroad trip to Australia, um, and got to um, see some of the national parks there and go to the Great Barrier Reef and um, spend several months over in Australia that I really realized, oh my gosh, this is what you can do with your, hmm. you can make a career out of this. And so it was all set from there. That was, that was it. I wanted to do land conservation. Um, I wanted to, you know, I had kind of a naive view of, of trying to protect, you know, things. Save the planet. Yeah, save the planet, yeah. exactly. And so that's what I've tried to do ever since. And um, everything that I've done, I guess, since then has been heading in that direction. And, and uh, so I came to the Conservation Fund in, in uh, 2004 and uh, have 
have really, really, it's been very fulfilling. And I love to kind of, you know, wake up every day and, and see the, the fruits of our labor um, on the landscape. 2004, I'll never forget, and I know you won't either, that the day before you got the letter to accept that you got the job, we found out we were pregnant with our first baby. Yeah. And, and so worlds collide. You know, here we are going to be parents for the first time in, in several months and, and, and a new job where you were going to walk in basically saying, uh, yeah, um, I'm going to work for a few months, and then I need to take <laughs> off on maternity leave. Yes, yeah. yes, that that, uh, that that all played out at a restaurant in Austin. Oh. We were we were sitting in an Italian restaurant in this bay window on Congress Avenue, so everyone could see us having this you know nice romantic date, and I'm bawling because I was you know of course well thrilled about the job, but I'll, and of course over the moon about a baby but the two together yeah it was bad timing. it was within less than 24 yeah, hours was, <laughs> that we found out about each of those events so it was terrible timing worlds collide but, yeah but, I'll, I'll never forget our waiter at that restaurant he kept coming by to see if we needed a refill or <laughs> more bread and and, it, and we were so upset i think he looked it, he probably thought oh my gosh they're breaking up yeah. she's cry, she's crying that's the only reason you know, he's a jerk. He must be breaking up with her. It's like, no, you have no idea why this is such an emotional right. moment. But you know, you know, I suppose the take-home message there is with life and with all things is that things that seem like they're going to be so terrible and impossible to figure out. I mean, here, 18 years later, here yep. we are, and, and it, we've got two happy kids and a great career. So. Yep, and and happy. It was happy times, even though we were crying that night. Yes, yep. yes, yep. <laughs> So the number is 800-552-8502 if you have a question for Julie, our guest. She's with the Conservation Fund. She does a lot of land protection. She does a lot more for birds than I do. So we are so excited to have her on, and I have some more questions for you. So, Julie, what are your favorite places? Where, where are your favorite places to go for hiking and birding in the listening area? In the listening area, there are, uh, gosh... Um, well, I have to say I have a very personal attachment to the Natchez River National Wildlife mm -hmm. Refuge. And many of you probably haven't been out there, and many of you probably didn't even know it was open um, because the, the public trails have been, only been open out there for, I don't know, maybe, maybe two years or something. Mm -hmm. But I think they have 10 to 15 miles of really great trails, um, and they're super well marked and uh, just a really beautiful, great place to go. Uh, so I love going there. I love taking my boat out to Caddo Lake and paddling around some of the mm. uh, some of the uh, the lakes in the area. Um, I especially love paddling down rivers, um, which I don't get to do as nearly as often as I'd like to. But there's always some crazy. It's always weather related. It's I always mean, weather, and there's always a disaster. It's but, so Goldilocks. It's either the water's too high or too low. It's never just right. Yeah, yeah. yeah. That's that makes it tough. So, okay, so what can a landowner do who's interested in protecting family land? Uh, what can they do? Well, there's a couple things there. Um, the first thing, well, I am absolutely not an estate planning attorney, but the one thing I have seen is that um, people out of equity often say, okay, I've got four kids and I've got this ranch, 
and we're going to just split it four ways because it has to be equal, right? And what you find in the next generation is that three out of the four kids have no interest in the ranch, and the one and one of them does. And then you get into a really painful family situation. Um, so you have to figure that out. And my gosh, talk to your family before it's too late and figure out what everybody wants because someone could get the property and the other three could get money or you know other something assets. other assets yeah. um so that's super important um there are some people have land that they want to protect um they want to you know they have a place that's very personal to them and they want to make sure that it's protected um, in perpetuity, and, and that can be done with something called a conservation easement. And um, conservation easements are, um, <clears throat> they're a voluntary written legal agreement um, that's between a landowner and the holder that basically restricts certain uses of the property to protect the conservation value. So a landowner may say, I want to make sure this is protected in perpetuity, so what I'm going to do is I'm going to restrict the ability in the future to subdivide the property, or maybe I'll restrict the ability, you know, now and in the future to, to put houses on it, things like that. Um, and so that is all monumented in, a, in an agreement. Um, the holder of the, of the conservation easement is either a governmental entity or a qualified conservation organization, which is called a land trust. And you have to pick the, the holder, you know, you have to put some thought into that because this is a permanent agreement and it's kind of like a marriage. You know, you gotta, you gotta make sure everybody matches up. So uh, regardless of where you are in the listening area, if you have any interest in this, um, I would suggest getting on the Texas Land Trust Council uh, website. Even if you're not a Texan. Even if you're not a Texan. Because it's, it's going to have some... It's, for the most part, universal information, information and it yeah. will tell you everything you need to know about conservation easements and, and land trust. But, you know, they may not work for everybody, but they certainly can work for some people. And um, it's one of those things, that it's, it is a perpetual agreement. It runs with the land. So if you sell it, the conservation easement goes with the land. Um, the owner continues to own and operate the property. Um, it doesn't mean there's public access, and, and for the benefit, for the landowners, there of course, the conservation benefit, um, but there can be tax benefits, um, and in some instances, there can be actually payments for conservation easements. So a conservation easement is, is a really good um, option. Now, there may be instances in which you just have land that may not have that many conservation values on it. Um, but you still want to do something to help conservation. So in an, in an instance like that, um, you know, you might consider in your estate planning, you could donate that piece of property to a conservation organization of your choice. And probably what they would end up doing with it is selling it. Maybe they would protect it with an easement first, but they would sell it, and then, the, and then that conservation group t could take the proceeds of that sale and roll it into uh, very high conservation value property. And that way you kind of have the gift that keeps on giving. So conservation value, I mean, like if you've got a bat cave or a spring head, something really unique uh, instead of just uh, here, here's, a, here's a pasture that we used to run cows on. That, yeah. that, that doesn't have really any right. conservation value. I but mean, like native prairie. Native or, prairie yeah, would be good. Uh, 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 forest, you know, native forest, mm -hmm. old, older 
forests growth. that haven't been put into plantations, um, karst, you know, rock features, things yeah. like that. Um, you know, the spring head, my gosh, that's like yeah, that'd be gold, gold right there. Right, right, right. Okay. Um, well, so you mentioned a few things I wanted to touch on. Uh, subdividing among the, the your kids, um, equal splits, and, and I think that for listeners that don't realize that fragmentation is one of our biggest challenges with wildlife because a lot of species need big chunks of real estate. That's why we don't have quail. Uh, they need big chunks of like habitat. And when you get, when you have big property of four kids and you divide it equally, well, guess what? One of them wants to keep his or her share and the other three don't. So that first one that wants to keep it can't afford to buy out the other three. So you've just taken your big chunk and you've, put kept a quarter of it and the other three quarters get sold to someone else that does something completely different that you know the new landowners want to run cows on it or put a orchard on it or just completely different and that's where we get to be that's where we get problems with with wildlife conservation is we've got to have large chunks of real estate and large does not mean 100 acres large means put three more zeros on that hundred thousand acres or even even greater than that put more zeros on it the better um, so that's something to keep in mind is is when we subdivide we're uh, helping with one of the bigger problems that and that's land fragmentation okay um so i was looking at your bio and i was thinking wow duke university carlton i thought but wouldn't you agree, you know, you've made some really good decisions, but wouldn't you agree that marrying me was the wisest decision you ever made? Come on. Yes. Come on. Yes, yeah. dear. Good. <laughs> good answer. Good answer. <laughs> All right. We've got a, uh, we, we're taking calls. We, ha we have one that's written in, and we'll, we'll ch get that one here in a second. But for anyone that wants to ask questions, the, this is a call-in show. This is Bird Calls on Red River Radio, the, the number to call is 800-552-8502. We have three people working in the phone bank and they would love to direct your call to us. And so you can ask Julie a question about protecting land, land conservation, all these other things she's talked about um, that is good for birds and good for us humans. Um, we're only on the air for another few minutes. So get your call in again, 800-552-8502. Okay, some more questions. So. Tell, tell us about some of your most memorable birding experiences. Oh, wait, wait, wait. You're right. I've yeah. got to deal with this. Uh, Honey. Yeah, thank you. So we, we had a caller who I think just didn't want to stay on the line and, and left it. And it and it's Dan from Shreveport wants to know, and I'll give this one to you, Julie. She, he wants to know about the widespread decrease of biomass of mammals, insects, et cetera. You want to you handle that one? Um, let's see. I and, wonder. Is, and don't look at biomass. Just, just, just take that word out. The wide, oh, well, widespread de decline of decline of, uh, of yeah. animals, well, birds I mean, too. We don't have time to finish that conversation, but there has been. I mean, it's 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 humans, and it's humans making choices that benefit ourselves, but don't necessarily benefit. Um, the rest of the planet our neighbors our neighbors our feathered and, neighbors right yeah, i mean i you know it's like i hate to say it but i mean i you know i do 
a lot of you know conservation fund does great work as do many other organizations but i mean it's a drop in the bucket compared to you, you just you can't you compare can't it to up. the destruction yeah, yeah. that that yeah. is constantly happening right. and so it's yeah it's loss of habitat it's it's spreading of diseases it's it's climate change it's you know windows and cats and and uh it's messing up migratory pa- patterns of mammals and and elk and pronghorn and <laughs> yeah it, it just goes on and on but you're right we can't handle that all at once uh dan also asked why do people congregate in spaces where birds are and vice versa and and i i i would think maybe the great tail grackle was where he was going with this yeah. since he's not on the phone we have to i have to use my jedi mind powers to figure out what dan was meaning but i i'm going to guess he was thinking about great tail grackles or in the the parking lots where where we congregate our cars congregate mm-hmm. well for for the great tail grackle they love those parking lots that have just scattered trees that are really bushy here and there there's safety with that because no pre, no mammalian predator like a cat uh, can walk across a parking lot without being seen even at the in the middle of the night they've got security lights on and the, guess what the not every grackle's asleep, and they can see the cat coming in, or a, a hawk in the day won't probably won't come in where there's a lot of busy traffic and people. They they do, but not as likely. So I think maybe that's one of the responses to that. But we've Julie and I've been to remote places where uh, yeah, where you can't see a lot of people and you can see a lot of birds, and and I I like to go to those places <laughs> so that. That, that leads me to that next question I had given you is, is tell us about your most memorable birding experience. Oh, gosh. I don't, I think that's pretty hard to pin down. We have done a lot of trips. In fact, we used to keep a list of the trips that, we, <laughs> that we've done, um, mm-hmm. both, you know, both out of the country and, and just trips in the, you know, in, within Texas and within the listening area. But, um, I mean, I think the, I think the, the most memorable trips are, are the ones, some of the ones that we've taken to Latin America and just for all kinds of reasons, you know, it's not just the birds are incredible, but it's also the experience you get in, in just going to a completely different place and, and seeing different people and, and, you know, having to navigate public transportation and, mm. and trying all the different foods and things yeah. like that. And, and usually the trips that <laughs> I think the ones that we still talk about are, are ones where some disaster of some level ensued and, you know, it might, might be breaking down of a vehicle and, yeah. and we had to get on a, on a, city bus uh, city bus or we had to hitchhike with people yeah. we never didn't know actually and, it was a rural bus yeah. it was a one of those buses that goes from mazatlan to durango we took we got on a bus that went from mazatlan to durango if you want to do some slang but with but, livestock on it yeah yeah because the car broke down yeah. and we were headed to the barranca to see the tufted jay in, in mexico so yeah those i i agree those are some of our most memorable uh birding experiences okay and, and i will say too that that uh, i think that's what you just said is important is is i mean the tough to jay was the reason for going on that particular leg of the trip but i think it's it's birds can give you a focal point for any of your travels an excuse an excuse yeah. yes it can give you an excuse and 
And, it, you know, it gives you an excuse to see things that you're not going to where everybody else is going. And you're not there taking selfie with 100 other people. And, of the same and statue. The, yeah. yeah. It, you know, you're going out in the middle of, of nowhere. Um, and it takes research and it takes um, some upfront commitment to kind of figure out where you're going to go. But, my gosh, that's those are the most rewarding Trips. Trips of all. This is Bird Calls on Red River Radio, 800-552-8502. We got another um, message from a caller. She, Andrea from Shreveport wants to know, uh, should I take care of a baby bird that fell out of the tree in my backyard? If so, what steps should I take? Um, well, last month we had Christy Chapman here from Orla. And that's uh, a licensed rehabilitation center right here in Shreveport. So, Andrea, you might want to give WERLA, W-E-R-L-A, let's see, that's Wildlife Education Research uh, Louisiana. of Louisiana. So look them up. Um, but the, the, the best thing to do if anybody finds a baby bird that fell out of a tree is there's a lot of bad stuff on the ground. There's fire ants, there's pet dogs, pet cats, pet kids. Oh, just kids, not pet kids. And get the, get the bird back up in the tree um, and, and hope that it sits up there because it'll chirp and mom and dad bird will find it and keep feeding it. So, But get it off the ground, bring the pets in, bring the kids in, and let the, the parents reconnect with the baby. But you're really fortunate, Andrea, to have Worla and, and having Christy and others um, here in Shreveport to help you out. Um, so, all right. Well, thanks for the call. And uh, let's see. I have some more questions for you. Gosh, a lot of questions. Let's see. Uh, well, you're talking about travel. Since you're a world traveler, what, what, what place is top on your bucket list? Oh. Not mine, but yours. <laughs> Well, on mine, I would like to go to Northern Europe and see the Northern Lights. Oh. I'd love to go to Norway, Sweden, Finland, um, explore up there, I th especially during the Northern Lights. I think that would be uh, just super incredible. Um, and there's there's cool birds along yeah, the way. Of course, there's this, absolutely. There's this giant grouse that's the size of a turkey called a capercaillie. I would love to see that. So, all right, done. Yeah, we're done. Go, we're okay. going. Let's yeah, get okay. let's get the tickets right. now. We're headed yeah. out tomorrow. I'd, I'd love to go to Nova Scotia. I'd love to go to Newfoundland. Um, Keep saying cold places. Yeah, is it, well, are you influenced by the heat wave absolutely, right now? Absolutely. Yeah. Absolutely. Yeah. That, it, it'll be a different answer no, in the middle of no, winter. I don't know. I, <laughs> I have to honor my northern roots there from Minnesota and uh, and, and get back up to some right. of those cold places. Right. Okay. Uh, let's see. Oh, we have we have someone from the phone bank. I don't know. Are we allowed to? Aren't phone bank people supposed to focus? Well, we got we got a, a message from one of the phone bank people. It's one of our very own here. Kiara from Keithville would like to know what binoculars are best for bird watching. While I'm bird watching, is it a good idea to bring bird seed with me? And where is the best place in Shreveport to go bird watching, or should I visit the wildlife refuge? Well, certainly the refuge right south of Bozier, Red River Refuge, is, is certainly a great place to go the answer to the bird seed you, you don't carry that the only food you bring is for yourself a little snack and water um, so bird seed 
is going to be really for outside your window or at the refuge headquarters. They have feeders um, that they'll bring birds in. And the best binoculars, there's so many now. The, the market is so saturated now. This is a good time to be buying, except you got to make a tough decision. When I first started birding and, and bought my first binoculars 40 years ago, there wasn't really, there wasn't a whole lot of choices. There were, there were really expensive Zeiss 10 by 40 BGAs that the, that were really geared towards hunters and those were super expensive. And then there was Tasco and all these other lesser brands that just, ugh. so now is a good time to look there. But what, what I always recommend is, is of course your budget. If you've got a budget of about three to $400, you can get a really good pair of affordable glasses. If it's something that says a hundred dollars on it, uh, I'd be a little skeptical, but uh, uh, I recommend any of the Poro, P-O-R-R-O. That's the style, the shape of the binocular, and and start there. Look for a Poro style that's in the three to four hundred dollar range, and you would be good, Kiara. But uh, yeah, take instead of taking bird feed, take some granola for yourself, and and, and use that snack along the way. So this is Bird Calls. Uh, the number is eight hundred five five two eight five zero two. We're we're here with uh, Julie Shackelford. She's with the Conservation Fund. She's a powerhouse for land conservation in Texas and beyond. Yeah, yeah you're working on something in Oklahoma, so it's not just Texas. Yeah, that's yeah, true. You're working up in the Little, Little River Little area River. up mm-hmm. near uh, Beaver's Bend and Broken Bow. That's mm-hmm. a really cool part of the country right there. Okay, so why don't you tell us next about a land trust? What is a land trust? You mentioned that earlier. Yeah, a land trust is a it's a nonprofit organization, and and they are the ones that work with private landowners to hold conservation easements. So it's a partnership, as I said earlier. It's like a marriage. Um, and marriage. Marriage. You had to get that word in. <laughs> and uh, land trusts can be statewide. They can be national, actually. Um, we have one in Texas, really great. Well, I'm trying to think. I think it's the only statewide organization in Texas. They're terrific. Um, and then most land trusts are regional, so they're focused on a, you know, on a, either a particular region or around a particular uh, resource. Um, for example, the Katy Prairie Conservancy or the Big Thicket Heritage Trust. Um, and there's land trusts all over the country. So there's, you know, there's also, of course, land trusts in Arkansas and Louisiana and uh, anywhere in the listening area. Um, and yeah, I mean, if you're inter- if you have questions about or thoughts or concerns or whatever about, you know, the what you'd like to do with your land long term, I would absolutely um, encourage you to, to reach out to a land trust. And again, um, the Texas Land Trust Council has a really great website and a booklet. Even if you're not in Texas, um, you, you can refer to that. And they actually have a list of all of the, the land trusts in Texas. And, and the last time I recall, it was probably around 40 organizations hmm. in Texas do mm-hmm some kind of land protection. Um, so they're, they're different, land trusts are different from what we do. So we don't, our organization doesn't tend to hold conservation easements. We're more in the kind of the acquisition and the protection and the, we don't have preserves. Um, we don't try to hold land for any longer than we have to. Uh, a land trust is a little bit different. Yeah. So, so land trust, you're not gonna see that on a billboard. This is not, <laughs> 
This is not something that's advertised, and so most people have never heard of it, don't know anything about it. But once you dive in, once you take those first few steps, you'll you'll realize, hey, I found somebody who pointed me in the right direction. Just like you said with with the Texas Land Trust Council, um, that that might get you in the direction where if you're in a different state, you can at least figure out who to call in that state and get you going. Yeah, and, and I mean, the, the staff at land trusts are so knowledgeable. I'm so impressed with, with what they do and, and their dedication and their knowledge. And so don't hesitate to reach out to, to a group and just start asking questions if you have questions. Okay, we've got minutes left. If you would like to ask a question, the phone call, the phone number here is 800-552-8502. Um, if you don't, our phone bank is going to keep sending us questions, and that's not their job. They're supposed to take your call, so please call them. Give them uh, a fine voice of yours to uh, patch, us, patch you through to us, and we'd love to talk to you. So, Julie, I've got another question uh, for you. Is um, If you hadn't gone down the career, career route you're on, what might have been your plan B? Oh, gosh. Thank God conservation came along. <laughs> and, and, and I have to tell people, I, even though we, we have the same address, we live in the same house, I didn't run that one by you. No, Several you of these not. I didn't run by you. So, so that um, I'm putting you on the spot. So what, what would a plan B have been? Well, I think I might have done something with, uh, I guess it really wouldn't have been far from the mark. I mean, it would native plants or you know maybe horticulture. Um, that's, that's too related. I, I know. I don't have any other... Huh. thing a pi almost, pilot you're six foot tall a pilot no, wouldn't have been work. good no mm. no i if i could do a second career as it's still sort of conservation but i would be an appraiser that oh would, that would be my next career choice a land appraiser a land appraiser yeah um good good call because boy there is a demand for that yeah and you you get out to some of the most fabulous properties in the country if you're a a, a large land appraiser. So that's what I would so have done. Good tip for listeners out uh -huh. there that are uh, looking for a career, huh? Mm -hmm. So that would that's in the real estate field. That'd so, be in the real estate yeah, field. Yeah. Okay. Um, all right. So why should we care about public lands, and don't we have enough so we can call it quits with additional acquisitions? Well, we're <laughs> we're still making more people. Oh. And, and there, as, as the expression goes, we're not making any more land. Oh. So I think there still needs to be public land. There still needs to be a place where wildlife can just be kind of free. And, you know, the more people there are, the more we're going to continue to have impacts on habitat and the environment. And the more we're going to trash up habitats elsewhere, um, you know, we need... We need some areas of public land um, for those for that for that wildlife. So and so never stop. On I don't think you can stop. Yeah. No. I mean it's a you know it's like it land conservation shouldn't be considered a luxury. It should be a necessity because not only is it habitat, but it's I mean think about the flood mitigation impacts from protected land in around Houston in, well, Louisiana, my gosh. I mean, keeping wetlands and keeping habitat intact provides a buffer from hurricanes, storm surge. I mean, that's one of the things that they're doing now in Louisiana and Texas to try to mitigate hurricane impacts yeah, is putting right. in more marshland. And the more we destroy it, the, the bigger the impact yeah. we're gonna have inland. Right, so there's right. a lot of economic benefits 
um, and environmental services that, that land can provide right, as well. Great. Well, thank you so much, Julie, for coming in, and uh, I hope to see you again. Yes, yes, yes. yes I look it, forward to visiting yeah, with you maybe again Maybe you can soon. come in annually, and, and I'll see you next year. <laughs> yes, this, perhaps this same, so. Same bat time, same bat channel next <laughs> yes, year. Yes, thank you. <laughs> All right, we're going to end with uh, our conservation tip, and the title is Take Your Child or Grandchild Out of the Country. Travel is the best way for our youth to see different things. Traveling abroad can open their eyes to all sorts of differences in landscapes and nature. They'll marvel at the sight of a toucan in Latin America or a wild elephant in Africa. Maybe the most important learning moment they'll experience is seeing different cultures, languages, and customs in new countries. This will broaden their worldview and may give them a greater appreciation of life back home in the States and a better understanding of how Humans often live very differently depending on location. Take a child in your life to another country and open their eyes to what this world has to offer and teach us. They'll likely be more appreciative of things around them, including nature and fellow humans. Do it for the birds. That concludes this evening's episode. You've been listening to Bird Calls with me, Cliff Shackelford, resident ornithologist here at Red River Radio. I think I thank our in-studio guest, Julie Shackelford, to discuss for discussing various ways to protect land for birds and other wildlife. Bird Calls has been made possible in part by the Knoll Foundation and the Community Foundation of North Louisiana. Tonight's episode was assisted by Kermit Poling, and our phone bank was operated by Chiara Lafitte, Max Benedetti, and Henry Edwards. Tonight's sound recordings of A Great Tail Grackle were by Edward Calue and Paul Marvin at xenocantu.org. The photo we used of that species on the Bird Calls page came from the U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service's National Digital Library. This show will be available soon as a podcast on our website at redriverradio.org. And remember, if you have a photo or a sound clip of a bird that you'd like me to identify, you can send an email to redriverradiomail at gmail.com. Be sure to join us for the next episode of Bird Calls next month at 6 p.m. on Tuesday, August 9th, and remember, do it for the birds.